We're going to continue on in our study of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to wrap up chapter 1 today. Um, but I did read this article that i got to share with you guys called Crime-Ridden Neighborhood Transformed by Praying Church. It said David Finch shares how the prayers of a church vanquished Satan's grip on a neighborhood. In 2010, a group of eight people from two churches felt called to the Detroit Boulevard neighborhood of Sacramento. It was known as one of the most notorious crime-ridden neighborhoods in all of Sacramento. Each house in that neighborhood was a place of danger. Nonetheless, this group of eight decided to walk through the neighborhood praying over each home and praying for the presence of Christ to reign over violence, addiction, and satanic oppression. They began walking through the neighborhood, praying over each home and rebuking the demonic strongholds of addiction and violence. One of the eight former Sacramento police officer and gang detective, Michael Young, reported that each time we prayed over the houses, we felt the weight of oppression becoming lighter. A woman from one of the houses confronted them. When she, was, when she discovered that they were praying for the community, she asked for healing, and God healed her. The group soon physically moved into the neighborhood and started what they called Detroit Life Church. A couple of years later, a local newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, reported that there were no homicides, robberies, or sex crimes, and only one assault on Detroit Boulevard between 2013 and 2014. Detroit Boulevard had been transformed by a small group of people who began their ministry in the neighborhood by praying around these houses, streets, and parks for the power of Satan to be vanquished. Kingdom prayer in the body is what it means to be faithfully present to his presence in the world. Now, we've all heard about the power of prayer, and we have all, in many cases, prayed really, really hard, especially as it relates to people being healed. But what about after they become Christians? What about after they are saved? Do you pray that they get involved in Bible study? Have you ever prayed that a young Christian would read his or her Bible more and on a daily basis? What about praying that an old Christian would share their faith with someone new? Do you pray for your Christian brothers and sisters to learn all that they can about God while they're here on earth? Well, that's just what the Apostle Paul did in our passage today. Open your Bibles up to Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Verses 15 through 23. Paul says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. 
and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Today we're going to look at some specific things that Paul prayed for and the mighty power of God's work through Jesus. And as usual, we'll identify some principles and application that we can apply to our lives. And first, let's look at verse 15 and 16 again. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. The obvious question is, what makes these Ephesians so special that Paul thanks God for them and prays for them? Verse 15 starts off with the conjunctive, with the conjunctive adverb, therefore, which means because of, and the preceding verses, 13 and 14, state that these Ephesians have put their trust in Jesus after they heard about him. They believed the truth and good news about their salvation in Jesus. They were Christians. Whether Paul knew them personally or not is not important. He knew of them and that they were a part of the same family he was, the family of believers, the family of believers. And that was enough for him to give thanks, unending thanks to God for them. Essentially, Paul said, once I heard your faith was in Jesus, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul didn't need to know anything else about them, but that they were Christians, that they had given their lives to the Lord Jesus and had been redeemed by God. These were his brothers and his sisters in Christ. And for that fact alone, he was grateful. So grateful, in fact, that he said he makes mention of them in his prayers. Again, he may not have known them personally, or at least not everyone who would read his letter, but the primary thing he wanted to convey is that he loved them enough to be thankful for them and to pray for them. Notice Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul was demonstrating how important it is that we have each other, and that we as Christian brothers and sisters are important enough to mention each other when we pray. The famous Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I quote all the time, said, Prayer, in many ways, is the supreme expression of our faith in God. If we believe that God has the power to answer prayer, then it is foolish not to pray for each other. Paul knew this, and so he was thankful for other Christians, and he prayed for them very specifically. Notice what he prayed for. Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, 
and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Paul specifically prayed that God would give these Christians the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is very important prayer. It's something we should all think about. First, let's define these two things, wisdom and revelation. According to one source, wisdom in the Old Testament describes the practical skills associated with living a successful life. These range from the ability to create highly skilled works to the intellectual capability required to make choices that result in favorable outcomes and avoid troubles. In the Bible, wisdom is often associated with trust in and the fear of God, with the trust in and fear of God. Notice Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So essentially, wisdom is knowledge applied. I'll give you a simple example. If someone tells you not to put your hand in a light socket because it will hurt you, you have gained some knowledge. If you trust the source of knowledge and do not stick your finger in the electrical outlet or light socket, then you have made a wise choice. If you do not trust the source of knowledge and do stick your finger in the light socket, you have made a foolish choice. And instead of a favorable outcome, you will have trouble. And the definition of revelation, in a broad sense, is the divine disclosure to humans of the different types of information or something God himself has made known. Something God himself has made known that could not have been made known without him revealing it. Especially as it relates to God himself, his moral standards, and his plan of salvation. This information, or this divine knowledge, is found only in the Bible. Notice 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Charles Spurgeon said, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing. For faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing. For faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. What Paul is praying for is that the Christians in Ephesus, the believers in Jesus Christ, would receive from God the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That they would gain an understanding of God his moral standards, and his plan of salvation through the scriptures and that they would apply this information to their lives in a practical way, that they would take their knowledge of God's truth and make wise, godly decisions in how they live their lives. Just like the Ephesians, we need prayer and we need to be reminded of the importance of God's truth and wisdom. We as Christians we have to face a world in which we no longer belong. A world that is corrupt and filled with sin. And it can wear on us and it can slow us down. I read this article about the need to fill our bicycle tires that said this. On a recent bike trip, 
It wasn't until I finally arrived home that I noticed something wrong. My tires were low. They needed air. The funny thing about bike tires is I don't remember taking the air out of them. It just went somewhere. Somehow, air leaks. My tires weren't crazy low, but low enough to know that my efforts in pedaling were not producing a maximum return. Each rotation was just a little bit harder than it would have been had the tires been filled properly. It got me thinking, life is like a bike tire. We don't intentionally take the air out, it just leaves. And just as it's harder to pedal with flat tires, it's not as fun to live when the air has leaked out of our lives. We don't know where it goes or how, just that the world has a way of deflating us. Difficult conversations. That's the sound of the air leaving the tires. (laughs) Tough day at work. Overwhelmed by circumstances. It happens to all of us, so where in my life am I being reinflated? Where am I pausing long enough to fill my tires? I know for me, the writer says, it happens when I drive by myself, worship, music cranked up, refilling. It happens when I take my Bible and journal to the beach and let God speak to me, refilling. And it happens to me when the stories of God at work fill my spirit, having coffee with wise and trusted friends, What about you? What are you going through with flat tires? How fun is it? How much effort are you putting out in relation to the return? What if you decided to pause and refill? Do you know your refilling stations? How does God fill your tires and push you onward? I don't know about you guys, but that story makes me think about a lot of things. Sometimes we are running low on on air. Our tires are low. And you know what? It's not really all that hard to see when other people are doing the same thing. And sometimes it's exhausting. Notice Paul said, or Paul prayed that these Christians would receive an enlightened understanding. He said, may the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. You can say that enlightenment in the context of the Bible is spiritual awareness, spiritual awareness. But from a simplistic perspective, it's having a rational outlook, a rational outlook. Think about this for a minute. Paul is praying for these Christians that they would learn about God, revelation, that they would apply that knowledge to their lives, wisdom, and that their understanding be rational, enlightened. The difference between rational and irrational thoughts is that one is based on evidence and the other on emotion. For example, a little while ago, I used the light socket as an example of wisdom. Suppose you did not trust the source who told you that it was a bad idea and you get shocked learning on your own. An emotionally irrational person would likely do it again thinking that the outcome might change. And a rational person would have no reason to believe that they would not get shocked again and therefore not do it. This is what Paul is praying for. That these Christians would be rational in their Christian walk and not emotional. The Bible is backed up by mountains of evidence that cannot be refuted. Therefore, there is no reason to believe it is not going to be the way God says it's going to be. 
This is why Paul prays for this rational outlook and then runs right into praying that they would know the hope of his calling. Why? Because just as I said, there's no reason to believe that God's way is not going to happen based on the evidence. Therefore, Christians need to know the hope of his calling. Notice 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. It's vital for Christians to understand this key point. Those who have been saved by God and called to live for eternity with God, not because it was earned, not because it was earned, or not because you're the coolest kid on the block, but called to be set apart from the world because of God's purpose and because of God's grace. And notice this was given to us in Jesus before time began. You who are Christians did not become Christians by accident or by chance. We are Christians because we have been called to be that. And there is eternal hope in that calling, which every Christian should be aware of. Notice Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn about God. Apply God's wisdom to life and live with the hope and assurance of eternity with God that is filled with the riches of his glory. Filled with the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Notice Ephesians 1.18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul was also praying that these Christians would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. One writer said, Paul wants his readers to appreciate that they will inherit all the riches of God himself. Old Israel was promised an inheritance on earth. New Israel is given an inheritance in heaven. The everlasting Canaan rest of glory is assured. All the saints and God's faithfulness will be vindicated. Remember, there is no evidence to support God's will not being fulfilled. Jesus Christ will return, and those that are called or those that belong to him will be gathered together for everlasting life. Notice 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another 
with these words. And finally, Paul was praying that these Christians would know the exceeding greatness of his power towards Christians according to the working of his mighty power. It's important for all believers to understand, at least to the best of our abilities, that God is all-sufficient and that he alone is capable of doing all that he says he has done, is doing, and will do, especially as it relates to him carrying out his salvation plan and instilling in us that hope of eternal glory. One evangelical preacher named Woodrow Crowell once said, with the power of God within us, we need never fear the power around us. I read about God's power in creation where Patrick O'Boyle recalls the late 1940s Hyde Park, Speaker's Corner, appearances of Frank Sheed, the Catholic author and publisher. Sheed could be devastating with hecklers, he wrote. Once after Sheed had described the extraordinary order and design to be seen in the universe, a persistent challenger retorted by pointing to all of the world's ills and ended by shouting, I could make a better universe than your God. I won't ask you to make a universe, he replied, but would you just make a rabbit just to establish confidence? <laughs> Amen to that. There is no power like God's power. Paul now moves into highlighting some of that mighty power in the last three verses of today's passage. Ephesians 1, 20-23, which he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6.14 and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. If you want proof of power, try asking somebody to raise someone from the dead. This is one of the great proofs to us as Christians that God's power is sufficient. If someone tries to swindle you into thinking there's some kind of power that is equal to or greater than God's, ask for proof. People today tend to get all caught up in the simplicity of power like the ability to put someone in jail or the ability to deploy a military. And if we're honest with ourselves, it seems like a lot of power until you set it side by side to resurrecting people from the dead. Now all of a sudden, having the power to share your opinion forcefully, like the cable news, is pretty weak. Colossians 1.16 For by him... God, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. There is no power equal to and certainly not greater than God's. Notice next, 
40 days after Jesus was resurrected, God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. In systematic theology, this is known as Jesus' session at God's right hand. One commentator said the session of Christ refers to the biblical teaching that 40 days after his resurrection, Christ ascended into heaven and was seated at God's right hand to reign over all creation. Jesus, after being resurrected, was placed in the highest position of authority by God the Father in heaven on the throne. Notice Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Psalm 118.16. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Before Jesus Christ died, he told the disciples that he was going away. And that he would send the Holy Spirit, which he did at Pentecost. Leaving all the proof needed that he was in heaven... And that he has authority. Notice Romans 8.34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ. It, It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. And that position indicates power and authority. Equal with God. Question, if Jesus is at the right hand of God, if he's on the throne, then who is above him? And the answer is no one. God's throne is above all. Notice in our passage today, God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. This is key to understanding who Jesus is. He is not some weak man who died on a cross. And he is not some second-rate demigod. He is, in fact, above all principalities, which is defined as powerful rulers. Referring to all rulers, human rulers, demonic spirits, angels. He's not only above all of these powers, these principalities. He is above everything. One source said that one can have power to perform a task, but not necessarily the authority to do it. Jesus Christ has both the power and the authority. Luke 4.36 Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus is above every name named, both in this age and the next, meaning this divine position as king above all is eternal. There never has been or never will be any above him. In fact, the verse says, And he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. His position is a place of power and authority. It's a place of honor and majesty. 
It is justice and holiness. It is pure. It is a place of praise and grace and eternal life. Notice Revelation 22.1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And he is the head of the church. Notice what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 3 and 4. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The church is not the building. When you walk out of here today, you can look up and notice the, the sign that Bill put up that says the church has left the building Christians are the church. You and me are the church, and Jesus Christ is the head, the leader, the ruler, the manager, the owner, the top dog, the one who holds all things together. He is above all, and we are his. In the movie, The Lion King, Don't throw anything at me for quote, you know, talking about Disney stuff, okay? In the movie The Lion King, a story is told of a king's ascent. From the moment the movie begins, Simba is branded as the heir to the throne. He is designated to the office at the start of the movie by baboon Rafiki, who lifts up Simba before the animals of the kingdom as they bow before him. He is the future king. The rest of the story describes Simba's exile and his homecoming to Pride Rock. When Simba returns to Pride Rock, he must battle for the throne, which has been seized by his uncle Scar. Simba conquers Scar and the hyenas. But even though he has been designated, appointed, and even conquered the forces of darkness, his work remained incomplete. At the end of the movie, immediately after the battle, an important scene occurs that a lot of people overlook. The camera suddenly shifts to Rafiki, bringing the story full circle. Rafiki takes his staff and points Simba to Pride Rock. An old era has ended. A new one is about to begin. In order for Simba to claim his kingdom and be installed as the king, he must ascend to Pride Rock, the rightful place of the ruler, to ritually demonstrate he has conquered. Simba dramatically ascends the rock and roars, and when he does, the other lines acknowledge him and his victory, dominion, and authority. Though Simba has been designated as the king from the start of the movie, though he had conquered in battle, he still is not installed as king until he ascends Pride Rock. In a better way, Jesus Christ is designated as king and lord from the beginning of the gospels and from all creation, really. But Jesus had to be installed as king. He had to be enthroned. He had to be recognized as king. He had to ascend to the right hand of the Father, sit on the throne, and receive from God the Father all dominion and authority. The ascension is about the triumph of Jesus the King. Ephesians 1, 15-23 Therefore I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, 
making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Principle one, Christians are worth your time. Christians are worth your time. Just as Paul continued to give thanks for the Ephesians because of their commitment and faith, we should be thankful and we should be thankful that we have God and that we have each other. What is the primary way to show biblical thankfulness? We pray just as Paul did. We should be thanking God each time we hear of a person coming to faith. We should be thanking God that we, in the faith, have each other. And we should pray for each other for knowledge. Pray that we would learn all that we can in this world. And as much as possible from the Bible. Pray that we would walk in wisdom and understanding. Pray that we would live a life filled with the hope and assurance that comes from being Christians. Saved by God, for God. Colossians 4.2 Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. I recommend writing things down in a prayer journal or a book and keep track of your prayers. Principle two, God is all powerful. God is all powerful. Just as Paul shared with his readers some of the most amazing things that God has done, we too should acknowledge God's power and tell people about it. Before Jesus took his position at the right hand of God, he left some instructions for his people. And I think it's important to consider those words. Notice Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Amen. So how do we do that? Well, let me just tell you this. First and foremost, you don't have to have some kind of perfect presentation or know every single thing that the Bible says. You don't have to be the best Christian. And you don't have to be a pastor. All you have to do is tell people who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is offering to them. There's a lot of aids out there that can help you. And I've included in your handout a link to a short video presentation called The Bridge. 
It's a gospel presentation that you can share with people. It's on YouTube. And it's actually super cool. So cool, in fact, so awesome, awesome, in fact, that I want to share it with you guys right now. At the end of the day, we are all very blessed to be a part of God's family. We are very blessed to be called Christians. And as we move to this world, I want to encourage each of you here today that it was not by mistake. You are not a mistake. You are called to be more than who you were. You are called to be a new creation. So rejoice, be thankful, be prayerful, and go tell somebody about God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for your word, for giving us the ability to learn about you, 
And I pray, Father, that as we do that, we not become puffed up with our knowledge, but that we apply it in a wise way to the world around us. And most of all, that we would not keep it to ourselves, but that we would share your gospel with the world. Help us to tell people how Jesus saved us and how he can save them. And Father, if there's anybody in this room today who doesn't know your son, I pray that they would please reach out so that we could talk about that. The alternative is hell. And we pray, Lord, that nobody would go there. Thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the Ephesians and for this letter to the Ephesians, Lord. And I pray that we would learn all that we can. In Jesus' name, amen.